0: Um, Thank you to all of you also for joining me this evening. I'd like to extend a special hello to uh, students who have graduated from the college and who have returned here tonight. It's nice to see familiar faces, welcome back. Finally, I'd like to let you know that there will be a discussion period beginning 10 minutes after the lecture in room 14 of this building. Okay, my lecture is entitled Courage, Insight, Sympathy, and Solitude. The Genealogy of the Noble Type in Part 9 of Beyond Good and Evil. What is noble? Friedrich Nietzsche prompts us to ask this question by using it as the title to the ninth and final part of Beyond Good and Evil. The question is a good one, for we use the word noble ambiguously. Speaking of politics, we use it to designate someone in the ruling class of an aristocracy. Speaking spiritually, or in terms of character, we use it to describe a soul with refined sensibilities. Some readers of Plato use the word to encapsulate the contradictory ideals of the Athenian gentleman, according to which self-sacrifice is both good and bad, desirable and undesirable. None of these definitions captures what Nietzsche means by noble. What, then, is noble? Nietzsche addresses this question in Part 9 by means of a genealogy of the noble human type as it has evolved over time and in various political regimes. More specifically, Part 9 traces the noble type from a pre- or post-political barbaric era to an aristocracy, to a democracy, and finally to what might be characterized as a supra-political condition. In each of these eras, the noble type develops one of four virtues. Courage, insight, sympathy, and solitude. Since the story of the noble type is a genealogy rather than a simple history, the changes made to the type are cumulative. This means the noble being who emerges in the latest stage of the genealogy not only differs from his predecessors, but also incorporates them in some way. The genealogy functions on at least two levels. The more obvious level, which I just outlined, describes different noble human beings in different eras. Simultaneously, the genealogy sketches analogous changes that can occur in an individual as he evolves over the course of a single lifetime. For the purpose of continuity, I will carve a middle road between these two narratives and will speak as though we were following a single character, moving through different historical and political eras, and evolving as he does so. We begin. Once upon a time, in a land here, there, and everywhere, things were quite dull and highly dangerous. On the one hand, there were loosely formed social-like organizations or tribes of people who were relatively civilized and peaceful, either because they had not yet been galvanized to try to strive as a people to become something higher than their current selves, or because they belonged to exhausted cultures that had left them soft and enervated Life for such people was perhaps not unpleasant, but it was not meaningful. On the other hand, there were human beings whose nature was still natural, barbarians in every terrible sense of the word, men of prey who were still in possession of unbroken strength of will and lust for power. It is here, in this cast of human beings, that we find the source of great danger. And it is in this group that we first meet the noble human being in its youngest and simplest form, for the noble type constituted this group. By characterizing these noble human beings as barbaric, Nietzsche means that they were untamed, ferocious, and audacious. In the genealogy of morals, he notes that their ferocity was held in check when they were amongst themselves, by the mutual recognition of the equality of their strength of soul, This equality of strong human beings is the true and natural basis of all social interactions, including the most refined. It produced in these noble beings a custom of consideration, self-control, delicacy, loyalty, pride, and friendship. The refined behavior the exercised amongst themselves, however, was counterbalanced by great brutality when they were confronted with strangers who were not their equals in power. Speaking of the barbarians' behavior in such circumstances, Nietzsche says Once they go outside, where the strange, the stranger is found, they are not much better than uncaged beasts of prey. There they savor a freedom from all social constraints. They compensate themselves in the wilderness for the tension engendered by protracted confinement and enclosure within the peace of society. They go back to the innocent conscience of the beast of prey as triumphant monsters who perhaps emerge from a disgusting procession of murder, arson, desecration, and torture, exhilarated and undisturbed of soul as if it were no more than a student's prank, convinced they have provided the poets with a lot more material for song and praise. Given this vivid depiction of the noble type, We should not be surprised to learn that, in the pre- and post-political age with which we begin our genealogy, the meeting of these peaceful, enervated peoples and the ferocious noble type was truly terrible. The barbaric nobles hurled themselves upon the weaker tribes. Their victory was brutal, absolute, and assured. Nietzsche claims it was not primarily their superiority in physical power that guaranteed their victory. Rather, it was their superior strength of soul. He says they were more whole human beings, which means at every level more whole beasts. What does Nietzsche mean by equating the whole human being with the whole beast? We are more familiar with the idea that what is human is distinct from, and even opposed to, the bestial. The noble barbarian's ferocity is the most obvious place for us to begin searching for an explanation of the connection between the human and the beast. We might be inclined to associate ferocity with beasts and courage with human beings on the grounds that ferocity does not involve knowledge, whereas courage does. According to this opinion, the courageous man knows the danger he confronts or might confront but he's able to gird his loins and face it. When we think further about this distinction, we might conclude that only the philosopher has knowledge, hence we deny courage to any other human being but him. If we push even farther in this direction, we might find that courage slips entirely out of existence with a slight looper. Nietzsche does not take this path. He suggests that ferocity is courage, or at least a form of it. Thus he denies that intellectual knowledge is necessary to virtue. Indeed, these noble barbarians are courageous precisely because they act without having calculated all the dangers and possible dangers that action entails. They are not utilitarian calculators and reactors. They initiate action. For the sake of clarity in our modern age, which obscures the distinction between action and reaction, we might call them pro-actors. Nietzsche simply calls them natural leaders and commanders. By characterizing these noble barbarians as more human and thus more beast, Nietzsche indicates that it is still in their nature to take risks, to risk themselves in order to live more fully. They have the audacity to act, and thus to grow. Contrary to the typical view of the human being whereby man is improved and becomes more human by eliminating the bestial side and replacing it with intellect, Nietzsche argues that so far a highly developed intellect has merely weakened man rather than improved him. It has made him unsure of who or what he is and of his place in the world. Speaking to the apparent contradiction between the humane side of a human being and the bestial side, Nietzsche observes that these two aspects of a human being are necessarily connected. The truly humane human being always has a kind of bestial ferocity underlying his humanity. But we digress. The noble barbarian does not have a sophisticated intellect. He is far removed from the proverbial scholar who seems to have lost his connection with his instincts and his body. Nor does this barbarian seem to be especially humane, though he is powerful and ferocious. By characterizing the noble barbarian as whole, therefore, Nietzsche seems to mean that his soul was coherent. His instincts were fully intact, strong, and they worked together harmoniously so as to create a kind of whole. In this way, he was still natural, like a beast. Indeed, the noble barbarian's powerful, beast-like instinct for life was linked directly to his ferocity, for the activity of life is no gentle business. Nietzsche describes it, saying, here we must beware of superficiality and get to the bottom of the matter, resisting all sentimental weakness. Life is essentially appropriation, injury, overpowering what is alien and weaker, suppression, hardness, imposition of one's own forms, incorporation and, at least at its mildest, exploitation. Every living thing and every political body, if it is healthy, will strive to grow, spread, seize, become predominant, not from any morality or immorality, but because it is living, because life simply is will to power. Let us pass quickly over the terrible bloodshed and the multitude of horrors that must have accompanied the noble barbarian's conquest of the more peaceful tribes, and move directly to what follows. In conquering these formless people, the noble barbarian imposed the strict order of his own soul upon them. He arranged them hierarchically, thereby founding the first state, which is always an aristocracy. As a member of the noble human type, He had the unique capacity to create moral doctrines with a positive or content-rich account of the good, that is an account of the good which says what it is rather than articulating merely what it is not. This capacity is crucial for founding a regime in a pre- or post-political circumstance, For only a content-rich account of the good can serve as a goal with which society can be pulled into existence out of nothing, created ex nihilo, that is, without a previous positive good that it can modify or against which it can react. In fact, it is fair to add to our earlier description of the formlessness and softness of the conquered peoples that they were formless precisely because they lacked a positive principle by which to order themselves which would give their lives meaning. To say this is not to diminish the oppression of these formless people by the newly established aristocracy. Nietzsche acknowledges that in an aristocracy countless individuals are reduced, lowered to incomplete human beings in order to support those in the higher classes. That fact, however, is not a decisive argument against aristocratic regimes. Every regime mirrors the activity of life, thus no regime can escape the charge of exploiting and lowering some group of people. What then is the proper basis upon which to evaluate regimes? Nietzsche argues that the true standard for evaluation is the degree to which a regime contributes to what he calls the enhancement of the type man. If we consider which regime is responsible for having enhanced man the most, then aristocracy wins the contest hands down. In order to make sense of this troubling and remarkable claim, let us return to our narrative. Our ferocious barbarian took his place in the leading ranks of the aristocracy. He never questioned his right to rule. He hardly thought about his superiority. He simply felt it, assumed it, and acted in accordance with this feeling. After some period of time, however, the hierarchical order that the noble barbarian instinctively created began to have an effect on the noble aristocrat. It developed a new feeling or pathos in him, a pathos of distance. That is, he developed a new way of experiencing the world, a kind of perception for hierarchy, for distinctions between high and low, noble and base. And then something very peculiar and mysterious occurred. The pathos of distance regarding the external world eventually gave rise to an analogous pathos with respect to his own soul. Whereas he had never been interested previously in his internal experiences or found them meaningful, with the birth of this new pathos, he developed insight, the second of the four virtues. He looked into himself and yearned for ever widening distances within his soul. As a result of this yearning, he began for the first time to transform himself. He articulated for himself the various components of his soul, pushing them apart in the process so that his soul was, in a way, stretched. It now comprehended more than it had previously. More specifically, the noble aristocrat soul now encompassed the barbarian soul while also going beyond it. Nietzsche calls this increase in the soul's comprehensiveness an enhancement. We are now in a better position to understand Nietzsche's remarkable claim that aristocracy has been the best regime. It has been the only regime to enhance man. More than this, man has never been enhanced independently of an aristocracy and its effects. In Nietzsche's own words, every enhancement of the type man has so far been the work of an aristocratic society, and it will be so again and again. A society that believes in the long ladder of an order of rank and differences in the value between man and man, and that needs slavery in some sense or other. Without the pathos of distance that grows out of the ingrained difference between the strata, when the ruling caste constantly looks afar and looks down upon subjects and instruments, and just as constantly practices obedience and command, keeping down and keeping at a distance. That other, more mysterious pathos could not have grown up either, the craving for an ever-widening of distances within the soul itself, the development of ever-higher, rarer, more remote, farther-stretching, more comprehensive states, in brief, simply the enhancement of the type man, the continual self-overcoming of man, to use a moral formula in a super sense. This soul-enhancing process cannot continue indefinitely. As with any regime, the aristocracy cannot last forever. The very attributes of discipline, intolerance, conservatism that enabled it to overcome unfavorable conditions and to create tougher, stronger human beings in whom character traits become clearly defined and deeply ingrained, eventually lead to the regime's downfall. A day arrives when the conditions become more fortunate and the tremendous tension in the aristocratic regime decreases. At one stroke, the bond and constraint of the old discipline are torn. It no longer seems necessary, a condition of existence. If it persisted, it would only be a form of luxury. Since the aristocracy cannot adjust to these softer circumstances, it begins to degenerate. Nietzsche defines corruption in general as the expression of a threatening anarchy among the instincts and of the fact that the foundation of the effects which is called life has been shaken. In an aristocratic regime, such corruption takes the form of the aristocracy's loss of its fundamental faith that the lower classes exist for its sake as the scaffolding upon which a choice type of being is able to raise itself to its higher task and to a higher state of being. This loss of faith is fatal to the regime. In the death throes of the aristocracy, when all its blooms are overblown and the air is thick with the sweet smell of its corruption, the society suddenly releases the most interesting, beautiful and uncanny individuals like seeds cast into the wind. Just as we did not dwell upon the terrible acts surrounding the establishment of the earliest aristocracies. We will not linger in the decaying aristocracy with its attendant debauchery and monstrosities. We leap over its decline and land in its ashes. Here in the embers we find a new regime, a democracy. Unlike the aristocracy that preceded it and from which it arises, a democracy is not ordered by or directed toward a content-rich account of the good. Rather, it defines itself in opposition to the aristocracy that spawned it. It is therefore a secondary or derivative regime rather than one that is self-subsisting. Whatever we might think of its derivative status, Nietzsche thinks it is now the only hope our noble human being has to recover his former vitality and thereby save himself and humankind from permanent degradation. But his recovery is far from assured. Let us scan the landscape to see whether we can get some idea of the odds of his success no longer are human beings separated from each other by the imposition of different political classes. They mix together relatively freely. Character traits, customs, and morals, formerly foreign to each other and even opposed, are now blended often indiscriminately, even within a single soul. All sorts of new what fors and wherewithals, no shared formulas any longer, misunderstanding allied with disrespect. Decay, corruption, and the highest desires become gruesomely entangled. The very being of these people is incoherent. They are at war with themselves. What almost all of them want, more than anything else, is for the war that they are to end. Happiness appears to them in agreement with the tranquilizing medicine and a way of thought, preeminently as the happiness of resting, of not being disturbed, of satiety. This landscape does not look promising. Danger is here again, as it was in the first stage of the genealogy, but now it is transposed into the individual, into the neighbor and friend, into the alley, into one's own child, into one's own heart. The morality of mediocrity, emerges as a necessary survival tactic, hunker down, become like everyone else, be prudent, by which they mean survive, just survive. But this morality of mediocrity is hard to preach. It must present itself as something high, something that validates life, gives it a positive goal and makes it meaningful, but it is none of these things, and it knows it. What is needed now above all else is a new positive goal, or good. But the creation of a positive good depends upon the one type of being who can create a content-rich good, the noble type. Where is our noble being? Did he survive the transition to democracy? Is it even possible for him to have survived? The decline of the aristocratic regime is inseparable from the degeneration of its ruling class Did our noble human being retain enough strength of soul over the course of the aristocracy's decline to remain truly noble? If he did not survive, is all hope for his recovery, and hence for the further enhancement of the type man, lost? The stakes could not be higher or more serious. Earlier in Beyond Good and Evil, in a part not dedicated specifically to the genealogy of the noble type, Nietzsche directs us to another source of hope. He tells us that a new form of the noble type can emerge from a mixed amidst this chaotic mixture of opposite heritages and multiple origins. Nietzsche describes this new noble as follows: When the opposition and war in such a nature have the effect of one more charm and incentive to life, and if moreover, in addition to his powerful and irreconcilable drives, a real mastery and subtlety and waging war against oneself, in other words, self-control, self-outwitting, has been inherited or cultivated too, then those magical, incomprehensible, and unfathomable ones arise, those enigmatic men, predestined for victory and seduction, whose most beautiful expression is found in Alcibiades and Caesar and among artists, perhaps, Leonardo da Vinci. A new noble type, fighting its way up through the warring passions of a disharmonious soul, and able to use the very tension of this dissonance as a source of vitality and seduction to life. Very exciting. But does this Alcibiades-like being appear in the genealogy of the noble type that is contained in Part 9, the part entitled with the now familiar question, What is Noble? If he does, he certainly does not leap fully formed onto the stage. Our question shifts From what is noble to where is the noble? In the age of the barbarian, the noble type was readily identifiable by its ferocity and its free exercise of its form-giving capacity. In the aristocratic era, we were sure to find a noble human being within the ruling class so long as the aristocracy was healthy. By contrast, it is not so easy to find our noble being in the democratic age. If he still exists, he is hidden and we must seek him out. We hunt for our noble being with the help of Dicca, a keen scientist of souls. He tells us of a variety of characteristics that the noble being will retain in spite of his circumstances. We learn, for example, that there is an instinct for rank that more than anything else is a sign of high rank. There is a delight in the nuances of reverence that allows us to infer noble origin and habits. In spite of the modern denial of the truth of concepts like the high and the low, such distinctions are natural to the noble being. He is, after all, of the noble type that bestowed these distinctions upon society in the first place. With this in mind, Nietzsche describes how one can discern this instinct for rank and even test for it if one belongs among those whose task and practice is to search out souls. He observes that the refinement, graciousness, and height of a soul is tested dangerously when something of the first rank passes by, something rare, beautiful, great, but, and this is crucial, this person or thing of the first rank must as yet be unprotected by the shutters of authority. Such things are living touchstones for nobility. A noble soul will react to them with characteristic reverence. A baser soul will feel and show no such reverence because it has not yet been told by tradition how it ought to react. Thus, the reaction reveals the type. Nietzsche observes that when confronted with the high, rare, and beautiful, the baseness of some people suddenly spurts up like dirty water. They have no natural sense of rank and hence no instinct for reverence. Envy, the desire to destroy the high and the rare, is an even more decisive indicator of baseness. No passion is more foreign to nobility than envy. By contrast, when the noble soul encounters these same things, there is a reflex of silence, a hesitation of the eye, a cessation of all gestures that express how the soul feels the proximity of the most venerable. In this reaction, we see a decisive flash of the noble soul. More lessons. We learn that the noble soul knows itself to be at a height. Even when the political distinctions of an aristocracy no longer exist, this soul will continue to accept the fact of its egoism without any question mark, also without any feeling that it might contain hardness, constraint, or caprice, rather as something that may be founded in the primordial law of things. Another clue. Language fails such a soul, for words are acoustical signs for concepts. Concepts, however, are more or less definite image signs for often recurring and associated sensations for groups of sensations. To understand one another, it is not enough that one use the same words. One also has to use the same words for the same species of inner experience. In the end, one one has to have one's experiences in common. Few things about the noble being or his experiences are common, hence he has difficulty communicating and is easily misunderstood. This lesson proves to be more than a teaching about how to recognize a noble human being in the modern era. Nietzsche tells us that the one thing human beings simply must have in their relations with each other is the ability to reach agreement quickly and easily in times of great danger. Since the noble being has difficulty doing this, and since he is now isolated from others of his type who have the best chance of understanding him, he is very vulnerable. It is indeed safer to be ordinary. Human beings who are more similar, more ordinary, have had and always have an advantage. Those who are more select, subtle, strange, and difficult to understand easily remain alone, succumb to accidents, being isolated, and rarely propagate. We begin to suspect that our noble being is in danger. Perhaps as a result of this realization, there is a sudden hiatus in the search, a moment of exhaustion, a cry of despair, almost. Nietzsche offers an extended description of the psychologist's heartbreak in his search for the noble soul. The more a psychologist, a born and inevitable psychologist and unriddler of souls, applies himself to the more exquisite cases and human beings, the greater becomes the danger that he might suffocate from pity. He needs hardness and cheerfulness more than anyone else. For the corruption, the ruination of higher men, of souls of a stranger type, is the rule. It is terrible to have such a rule always before one's eyes. The manifold torture of the psychologist who has discovered this ruination, who discovers this whole inner hopelessness of the higher man, this eternal too late in every sense, first in one case and then almost always throughout the whole of history may perhaps lead him one day to turn against his own lot, embittered, and to make a, an attempt at self-destruction, may lead to his own corruption. Surprised, we learn that the noble soul is tremendously fragile, more fragile and more endangered than coarser souls. Are we able to feel sympathy for such a being? A test. What is posed as a test also serves to show us something of how the noble being acquires sympathy, the third of the four virtues. Since we have not yet found our noble being, Nietzsche cannot yet tell us what this noble being has seen, heard, and learned as he has moved through the modern world, assuming he is still alive. At this moment, when Nietzsche cries out, we are invited to imagine that Nietzsche's discoveries about the human condition parallel those made by the noble being whom we seek. Nietzsche's cry merges with that of the noble soul. This distress is neither limited to the lot of the noble individual whom we seek, nor to the noble type more generally. Rather, the lot of the noble soul is only properly understood in the context of the genealogy of humankind. Though I cannot linger here on the connections between the noble type and humankind, let me point to it by borrowing from an earlier part of the book where Nietzsche is brought to his knees by the same anguish that causes him to falter in his search for the noble being in part nine. In this earlier part, however, he explicitly connects the fate of the noble type to the fate of humankind. There are few pains as sore as having once seen, guessed, felt, How an extraordinary human being strayed from his path and degenerated. But anyone who has the rare eye for the overall danger that man himself degenerates. Anyone who, like us, has recognized the monstrous fortuity that has so far had its way and play regarding the future of man. Anyone who fathoms the calamity that lies concealed in the absurd guilelessness and blind confidence of modern ideas suffers from an anxiety that's past all comparison. With a single glance, he sees what, given a favorable accumulation and increase of forces and tasks, might yet be made of man. He knows better still, from his most painful memories, what wretched things have so far usually broken a being of the highest rank that was in the process of becoming, so that it broke, sank, and became contemptible. The overall degeneration of men is possible, there is no doubt of it. Anyone who has once thought through this possibility, to the end, knows one kind of nausea that other men don't know, but perhaps also a new task. Each's agony, pierces the intervening pages of the book, and reaches us where we sit on our haunches in Part 9, stalled in our search for the noble being. Suddenly, an unnamed voice calls out, Wonder, who are you? I see you walking on your way, without scorn, without love, with unfathomable eyes, moist and sad like a sounding lead that has returned to the light, unsated from every depth. What did it seek down there? with a breast that does not sigh, with a lip that conceals its disgust, with a hand that now reaches out only slowly. Who are you? What have you done? Rest here. This spot is hospitable to all. Recuperate. And whoever you may be, what do you like now? What do you need for recuperation? Name it, whatever I have I offer to you. If the unnamed speaker is accurate, then we have stumbled across someone who is homeless in the modern age. What was he seeking? Love? Friendship? An ultimate foundation for all things? Whatever he sought, he seems not to have found it, and now he is in a very bad way. Perhaps you have already guessed that this wanderer is our noble soul, whom we sought for so long. What he has seen, what he has endured has almost destroyed him. Almost. The wanderer's response to the unnamed voice is aloof, but it nevertheless reveals an acute and prolonged pain. Recreation. Recreation. You are inquisitive. What are you saying? Give me, please, another mask. A second mask. Someone asks, slightly panicked, whether the wanderer is going back, by which he presumably means back to the obscurity from which he emerged, he is reassured. The wanderer is not retreating in order to avoid the next stage in his evolution, rather he is going back like anybody who wants to attempt a big jump. He's withdrawing from society temporarily in order to recuperate and regain enough strength to transform himself from a wanderer into a new kind of commander. The success of his transformation is far from assured. The wanderer himself doubts his ability to succeed. He no longer has the bold, unreflective self-assurance of the noble barbarian, nor does he assume, like the noble aristocrat, that his authority will be recognized. Our wanderer has lived amongst the people. He now knows that the noble type is not as dissimilar from other human beings as his predecessors and his former self presumed. Moreover, he has acquired some of the attributes and habits of the weaker human beings, which means at this point he is genuinely weaker than his his forefathers and his former self. His weakness is perhaps most apparent in his own conflicted feelings about what he is and what he can do. Speaking unlike any noble barbarian or aristocrat, he wonders, Will people believe me? But I demand that they should believe me. I've always thought little and badly of myself, only on very rare occasions, only when I had to, always without any desire for this subject, more than ready to digress from myself, always without faith in the result, owing to an unconquerable mistrust of the possibility of self-knowledge, which went so far that even in the concept of immediate knowledge, which theoreticians permit themselves, I sensed a contradictio in adjecto. This whole fact is almost the most certain thing I do know about myself. There must be a kind of aversion in me to believing anything definite about myself. A listener is stunned to hear this odd, highly sophisticated, doubt-laden self-reflection from one who is supposedly noble. He gasps, amazed and horrified, but whatever happened to you? The wanderer has a hunch, but he remains unsure. Nietzsche steps in and adds substance to the wanderer's suggestion. In this modern world, he explains, the wanderer has not been able to find the company and psychic nourishment that is suitable for him. He does not fit into this society, he does not belong, and he never will. But his loneliness drove him to try, and these efforts at intimacy have made him ill. The wanderer must finally stop trying to escape his isolation. It is high time for him to learn to make his solitude a virtue. His acquisition of this fourth and final virtue, the virtue of solitude, marks the latest stage in the genealogy of the noble type. Our noble being's solitude is primarily metaphysical rather than literal. It refers to his homelessness in the modern era. Since he cannot find a home in this external realm, he must make one within his own soul, To do this, however, he must first learn to remain apart from those around him and from the age in which he lives. He must learn to be isolated without giving evidence of living apart. For this, he needs a mask. He needs to hide, partly in order to protect himself, but also out of sympathy for his fellow human beings. Every profound thinker is more afraid of being understood than of being misunderstood. The latter may hurt his vanity, but the former his heart, his sympathy, which always says, alas, why do you want to have as hard a time as I did? But why is his solitude not merely necessary or an act of sympathy, but also a virtue in its own right? As we've seen the activity of life, living, means growing, expanding, and striving to enhance what one is. Nietzsche explained how the hierarchical structure of an aristocracy produced a pathos of distance in the soul that ultimately enhanced the type man. No such hierarchical structure exists in a democratic regime. Therefore, this regime cannot enhance human beings, right? Not so fast. (laughs) Recall that Nietzsche says every every enhancement of the type man has so far been the work of an aristocratic society. He does not say that an aristocracy is the only kind of regime in which such enhancements are possible. If enhancement is possible in a democracy, how might it occur? Since the democratic regime is not ordered hierarchically and in fact opposes hierarchies, It cannot be the direct cause of soul enhancement. Perhaps it provides opportunities for enhancement indirectly, even unwittingly. Indeed, we've already seen in Alcibiades and his kind examples of how democracy can be an indirect cause of enhancement. The noble being whom we are tracking shares variation and the tension of contradiction in his soul with Alcibiades. But is his task simply to repeat what the Alcibiades-like man has already done? No way. (laughs) We demand that he supersede his predecessors. To do this, he must make better use of his freedom from a hierarchical political structure and better use of the components of his soul. As if sharing our defiance, Nietzsche now presents us with something like a new beginning to the genealogy of the noble type. He asks the opening question again, then, immediately upon the heels of this simple restatement, he reformulates the question and in so doing takes account of the effects of time and circumstance. What is noble? What does the word noble still mean to us today? He responds directly to the second question, quote, it is not actions that prove him. Actions are always open to many interpretations, always unfathomable. It is not the works, it is the faith that is decisive here, that determines the order of rank. to take up again, an ancient religious formula in a new and more profound sense. Some fundamental certainty that a noble soul has about itself, something that cannot be sought, nor found, nor perhaps lost. The noble soul has reverence for itself. What does self-reverence mean? Reverence clearly has religious connotations. Self-reverence requires the noble being to become a god. And What does a god do? He makes worlds. Thus, the noble being today must make a world out of himself. But to become one's own god means that one is alone in a more thorough way than was previously thought possible. This solitude is the deeper meaning of virtue that the wanderer must now embrace. Compare our noble being's new activity to his actions in the earlier stages of his evolution or to the activity of noble beings who existed in previous eras. The noble barbarians had coherent souls. They were more whole human beings. However, they showed no signs of being interested in the interior life of the soul. Their actions were simple and outwardly directed. The noble aristocrats were aware of their interior experiences, found them meaningful, and enhanced their souls by stretching them so that they became more comprehensive. This self-enhancement, however, depended upon the pre-existing hierarchical structure of the aristocracy. The alcibiades like man is our first example of a human being into whose soul truly new elements have been introduced. These introductions made his soul interesting, but also incoherent. He was able to manage this incoherence fruitfully, but he never attained the noble barbarian's wholeness. Like Alcibiades, today's noble human being is incoherent. However, he must do more than remain the most successful fighter in the ongoing war that is his soul. He must create a whole out of the chaos that he is. He must do this self-consciously, meaningfully, and without a political structure to direct his soul-enhancing activity. If he can do this, he will become a kind of philosopher god who dwells in his own soul like a god in his world. He will become the most comprehensive soul, which can run and stray and roam farthest within itself, the most necessary soul, which out of sheer joy plunges into chance, the soul which having being dives into becoming, the soul which has but wants to want and will. The soul which flees itself and catches up with itself in the widest circle, the wisest soul which folly exhorts most sweetly, the soul which loves itself most, in which all things have their sweep and countersweep and ebb and flow. If he can do this, he will have encompassed and thus surpassed the greatest achievements of his forefathers. If he can do this, he will become a creating commander, the like of which the world has never seen. If. Thank you.